This is Radio Boston, and the Commissioner of the Boston Police, Michael Cox, is here with us in Studio 2, so let's dive right in. Commissioner, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you. Happy New Year to you. Um, I'm thinking about change. That's really, I think, the theme of everything that we will talk about in our time today, and we're thinking about a conversation you had on a radio program last March where you said, um, the public's needs will change, so we will change. Um, And it made me think of a conversation we had last week with the new Bristol County Sheriff. He's been in place one year after uh, displacing an incumbent who had a very different view Mm. of that job. And I asked him if he thought the role of jails and prisons were changing uh, and what his role was. Here is what he said. My job is to make sure that they're released in better shape than when we got them. Why? That's why we call it. Why is why that it, your job? Th- because it's a public safety issue. Um, the other issue is that it's, it's just the right thing to do. It's in everybody's interest. Are you moving the Boston police to be something different than it was when you first became an officer yourself? Um, I don't know if I'm moving it. I, I, I think evolution has a way of changing things over time in general, but I know I'm, I, I think about it. I, I know we're intentional about trying to create change. Change to meet the needs of the public currently. Change to make sure that we're the best organization we can be uh, for both the people who work here and for the public we serve. Uh, change um, uh, just in general or, you know, as an organization or a profession, period, you know. And so as long as we're looking to always improve, to better, to make sure that we're uh, appropriate, <laughs> I think there will always be change, and, and that is something you have to work on daily. Let's stay with this then and now. I'm intensely curious about it. You said just now, you said change to meet the needs of the public. How have the public's needs changed? And again, I'm thinking yeah. about, you know, you started your career here. You've come back full circle to be the commissioner yeah. in that time. Yeah. How have the public's needs fundamentally changed when it comes to law enforcement and police? Well, first and foremost, I mean, the core of what we do is provide public safety and, and, and the, you know, the public needs to feel safe. They need to feel safe and they need to be safe around that. And so we provide um, a symbol of that in, in so many ways. And we also you know, need to make sure that we do things to uh, hold people accountable that are within our society that just aren't paying attention to our rules and regulations and, and actually harm people. Um, you know, one of the needs that are out there, is, and I and I needs is maybe a little loose, but the fact is, is that we're aware of things that we weren't aware of before, and that's the evolution. Uh, we we try to be a lot more trauma informed, uh, so we don't have a negative impact. That's not something we worried about in the past. I don't think it was just we show up and do what we do. Um, we understand that the public's needs are vast, and you know what is our role in that? Maybe maybe we back away from things that maybe it's not our role and get the appropriate people in there now. Uh, the things that are our role, I think it's really important that we try to be the best we can be at that. And so the needs are, you know, probably have always been there. It's just that understanding what they, they are are a lot more advanced now. And so we have to be even smarter and brighter and more invested into making sure we understand what those are. What's not your role that maybe would have been seen as your role before? Um, well, you know, so we, we respond to mental health calls, always have, potentially might always have to 
only because the fact is that you never know, uh, you know, the mental state of a person or the needs of that person. And people will tend to, when they're scared, will always call the police. Yeah. That's just the nature of it, right? We, we are public safety around safety. If someone doesn't feel safe, it's natural for them to call the police, um, you know, to provide that safety. But the fact is now we understand when we, we get there that uh, if we recognize that it's not a, uh, uh, a safety issue, it's a mental health issue, that maybe we're not the best suited to address that. So get the people involved as fast as possible to address some of those things around that. And, and so in years past, I don't think we thought about that as much. We just responded and responded the same way, regardless of the, of the need at the time. And so now, you know, we, we have units that are, you know, work particularly well with people who suffer with mental health issues. We, we, I mean, we partner with all kinds of folks, whether our best clinicians or the city's teams, uh, about people who, who, who suffer from mental health or, or, you know, drug addiction issues, uh, partnering with them to address those needs around that. And so it's important that we always be a student of people, <laughs> Because when we're around them, we need to understand what's going on so we don't overreact or underreact or react in a way that's not appropriate. We're speaking with uh, Boston Police Commissioner Mm -hmm. Michael Cox. Um, I want to think back to when you were a kid Um, and what's kind of echoing in my head, and I'm I'm sure you're – I know you're acutely aware of it, is the the podcast and then the HBO documentary about the Charles Stewart – uh, murder case and, you know, the, the, the comments and the recriminations about policing during that time, you were on the force during that time. We saw a lot of black men in our community talk about being young black men at that time and um, knowing they were going to, the police were going to come after them for being young black men. And it made me think about, okay, when you were a kid, do you remember your first encounter with a police officer? I do. I didn't have very many, I must admit, but I, I do. And it had to do with me running down the street and I was late for something and I was thinking, trying to catch a train and I was running pretty fast. And an officer, you know, yelled at me and asked me to, you know, come here. And I looked at him like, what do you want me for? And I just kept going and he, you know, and he... You kept running. I kept running because I was running for a train and then he adamantly, you know, made it known to me that he wanted me to stop. And I did. Uh, only because I couldn't understand, you know, I didn't have any, you know, react any actions with, with the police, nor did anyone in my family. So it's not, you know, that wasn't something I was used to in general. And then, you know, he, you know, came over to me and he said, "What, where are you running from, or whatever?" And I'm like, "I'm going to catch the train to the Dudley Station, or whatever." And he kind of looked at me, I guess maybe, you know, from the way I talked or whatever the deal is. He was like, "Ah, oh, you know, go ahead and what have you." And that's all I really knew about the police. And in, in our household. You know, they, they weren't invited to our house. I didn't know anything about them. And if you called the police, it was a very, very, very bad thing. How old were you? Uh, I was I was probably, I don't know, maybe 12, 13, 14 years old. Was the officer white? Oh, uh, yes, yes. And at the time, did you feel like the officer was singling you out because you were a black kid or just because you were running? I mean, was there a moment of awareness there for you? You understand what I'm asking? Yeah, you? no, I do. I do. And, and, and it's, so, if not, the answer is no, but that's what I'm asking. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I did. You know, but you have to understand, you know, I grew up in Boston and we grew up, went through that whole busing in, incident. In, 1974. And, and race was a, was, a, was a big deal in general. And so 
for me, it, it wasn't a police thing because I didn't. That's really the only interaction I had with police. But I had that when you walked in a store, when you if you went into a bank, if you went into, it was a you know society issue. So for me, it wasn't something I just say. Well, it's just the police. It was everybody. <laughs> it was you know everywhere where people weren't used to seeing people like me. So so for me, it wasn't something I identified with police because I just didn't have really a lot of encounters with it. That was just on that one day. Um, I know I had many encounters with it in many different places, many different forms, uh, you know, all throughout life. You know, because so, we're in the, the anniversary yeah. this year of busing, were you bust? No, so I um, I had the, the, you know, the privilege of my parents scraped and, you know, whatever to send me to, to uh, public, I mean, um, parochial school when I was younger. Uh, and then later on, I went to the, the T- James P. Timothy in Boston, Roxbury, where I was still wasn't bust. I could actually walk to school mm-hmm. from that, so I had the privilege of that. And then later on in life, I w- went to prep school. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, they were very aware of it. You know, my other brothers and sisters all went to the public schools, and and maybe that's part of the issue around some of that. So, so I was very lucky and blessed in a lot of ways that I was not bust. And even when I went to public school, I wasn't bust. I still walked to school. So, so we're speaking with Boston Police Commissioner. Michael Cox mm-hmm. and and I you know I, I've said that the, the whole theme I think of our conversation today is sort of change and and your vision for changing as you've said the the police force or or the fact that a police force must change to meet the changing needs of a city and and I'll stay on this Charles Stewart murder from the 1980s you know with the the original accusation from him that it was a black man who killed his wife when in fact he uh, was guilty and there was a conspiracy there. Um, to ask you, you know, since uh, since the documentary and the podcast came out, Mayor Wu has apologized to two black men that the police brought in. Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot there. How d- did that resonate with you? How did it resonate with you? We are in such a unique, unique position with you as a then and now, as a child, as an early officer, and now as a commissioner, and an experience uh, growing up as a black man in this city with this history, yeah. you are so unique. Well, I don't think I'm unique. I'm, I, I'm like any other person that grew up here in the city. I just have a job that they don't have the opportunity. Or Which makes you unique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so point well said. You know, I, 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 you, know you talk about you know, change and, and, um, and opportunity for it. And so remember I described you, you asked me, was this a police issue around, you know, did I feel as though you know, I'm being discriminated and sort of identified because of a person of color? So if you're a person of color and you just grow up in this world that we live in, you know, you have a lot of experiences that way. And it's not just in one place around. And I understand that. Um, and then I had the uh, unfortunate, uh, you know, incident that I had personally which helped me as a young officer, you know, understand that it's a job where you can help a tremendous amount of people. But the fact is, you have to be intentional in making sure that the the biases of being a human don't creep into the work that so, you do daily. Excuse me, for listeners who may not know, while you were an officer, you were in plain clothes, you were mistaken by other officers yeah. and beaten. And yeah. then there was a great deal of pressure against you not to speak out, uh, and you did speak out. I did. I did, as a matter of fact. And, um, you know, I don't know if I'm just silly or whatever, but I've never really been intimidated by people <laughs> in general. 
uh, it's particularly if you're doing the right thing. And, and I think, you know, some people make that mistake, which helped me be highly focused. And then I stayed within the police department. And more importantly, I wanted to make a difference. But I wanted to make a difference without fanfare, without <laughs> a lot of people, you know, uh, knowing what I'm doing or, or asking me about it, because I truly couldn't understand, you know, from a human pr- perspective, how can you do this to people? How could you harm someone uh, in that way and then just leave them there? How could you do certain things around that? And so uh, I understand the importance of doing the job and the, and the amount of help that, ne- that is needed, particularly in neighborhoods of color where you absolutely need public safety because it goes to your life. It goes to your experience in that life, being able just to, to enjoy life and, 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 and you know have your kids play outside. There's a public safety component to it, and, and particularly in minority communities. And I know having worked at a time when it was the worst crime in the history of this city, um, the thanks and the appreciation that people in those neighborhoods had when police were there to help you know them live life in a, in a much freer and better way. And so it's really important work that we do uh, in, in so many ways. And the fact is, is that it's important that the people who do this job understand the impact that we have on, on communities, um, that we're here to serve, and the fact that we're a part of this community. We're a part of all our communities, right? And so that's really, really important. And that gets to the community policing point. And because, I, you know, I, I take it so seriously around that, like it's – yeah, it becomes uh, you know kind of woven into everything that you do and everything you're trying to do. You mentioned change in the beginning about the theme of change. One of the things that I'm trying to change is to get people to look at police and think about what we do in a different way. We draw from all walks of life. We want to draw from all walks of life. Uh, but we're a profession like any other. People don't come on this job just to hurt people. That's not what they're doing. They, you know, I think a lot of them sign on because they want to help. They want to give back to society. But what happens when once someone, you know, comes on this job from an outside perspective where people just vilify and just say, well, you're a police. You're naturally going to do X or do Y or do stuff in a negative way. Um, I need people to understand that we are made up of human beings right? and that, you know, we intentionally have to train them in such a way to understand uh, you know, that they have biases, not to act on those biases, but train them to, you know, always interact with the public in an appropriate way, train them to understand that we're here to serve uh, and make sure this environment is the best it can be for both them and the public in both ways. And that if, you know, and here's the, the, you know, the hard part, is if, if they do what we ask them to do for the most part and they make a mistake, that they're not going to be thrown out <laughs> like a pair of old shoes. Right, they will retrain them. They'll, they'll, you know, be held accountable, but they're going to be retrained or what have you, so that they can feel good about the job still, so that they can learn from the mistakes, so we don't ever make it again. Right, we're not made up of of robots where people can't make a mistake, but there's a difference between mistakes and behavior that probably should, means that you shouldn't be here. Period. Yeah. <laughs> right, and and that's a sometimes that's kind of nuanced around that. And so my struggle is trying to at the time, attract the right people to get on this job, and then also build up the people that are here that are, you know, currently, you know, they took the job for the right reasons, and the fact that we have to build them up so that they they want to always do the right thing by everyone around that without feeling as though this is a place where if they ever make any mistake whatsoever, 
that they're going to be thrown out. So let's do the the high and the low of that now, mm-hmm. because I want to be respectful of your message and respectful of the pushback that I know listeners will want me to ask yeah. on both of those. So we'll do the high first, mm-hmm. and we'll do the low second. Mm-hmm. All right. So the high, uh, there's a new police contract. Yeah. Um, and in that police contract, uh, it was uh, one of the last, if not the last, that the city negotiated. There were all the public contracts were up for negotiation after Boston Mayor Michelle Wu took office. Um, one of the key pieces was a piece of reform that carves out a set of, uh, I'm kind of scrolling through, I was going to say offenses, but not just offenses, but also accusations of particular kinds of offenses, if I'm correct, for which one cannot seek arbitration. And and the reason I'm bringing that up as a high is for two reasons. One, uh, that there is now that set, but also that it is a carve out and it's not everything. Mm-hmm. And if I'm understanding you correctly, the balance that, that I'm, I would perceive that that's a good thing to you, both because there is a set that, the, that people can count on. Listen, if it's that egregious, no arbitration. You don't get a, a, a Rose, mm-hmm. right, who commits, uh, is alleged to have committed terrible acts against kids and can use arbitration. On the other hand, if you make a mistake, it's a mistake. Is that what I should understand is the kind of balance that you're looking for? Yeah, those are criminal offenses. Right, right. <laughs> That's really, you know, not a... Those 30. Tough, right, and that, those aren't mistakes. And, and some say, well, why in the world does this industry have to even, you know, do that? Well, it has not to do with the individuals. It has to do with their ability to arbitrate and go to an outside entity where this body has shown time and time again that regardless of what you find someone guilty of and you've tried a person, we're going to hire them back right. because of whatever reason that they deem appropriate. And so that's the reason why. It's not because we don't have the ability to you know, discipline our own. It's just that they had the ability to, to appeal to another entity that doesn't seem to take into effect the impact on the public. You know, what we're trying to do, it doesn't seem to answer to any of those things. So and that's so, a move toward goodness in your mind, based on what you're talking that about That is here. a big deal, right? There's no, based on, I know, that's, that doesn't exist in any police department out there. And so much so where you had the, the patrolman's union had actually talk about, you know, and I'm so happy he said it publicly, and it's not something I cued him for, is that, you know, you know you know, the biggest enemy to police are bad police, and no one wants bad You're talking police about Larry officers. Calderoni, Correct. the head of the Boston Police Correct. Patrolman's Association. Which, you know, which I was, you know, fairly happy to hear him say that themselves. And, and you know, and that's part of the issue is, is that people care deeply about that. I mean, this is a, a job where there's a lot of passionate people about what we do. And, and, and sometimes I think the public, you know, gets the perception is that we don't care about that. And when someone does something wrong, we care deeply around that and making sure that, you know, if they don't belong here, that they're separated from the organization. So that brings me to the low, because now I want to talk about uh, Captain John Danielecki. Um, and I've got a couple of questions for you there. Um, and uh, for listeners, there's a lot that we could sort of lay out for setup. But uh, what I'll do is I'll talk about a complaint that's filed in December with the Massachusetts Peace Officer Standards and Training Commissioner Post. Um uh, regarding a deposition he gave in a different legal situation that raised questions about his truthfulness and therefore led one of the two of the attorneys to ask Post to examine both 
him and how the Boston Police Department is handling internal affairs investigations. Um, and the, to quote one of the attorney, attorneys in a Boston Globe article recently, uh, they're claiming that the current system, quote, looks to exonerate officers and, quote, what we're trying to do is have an internal affairs investigators not just accept the officer's story about what happened, end quote. Um, I'm guessing you're going to take issue with that, but I want to ask you. <laughs> I, want, I, I mean, this is this yeah. is serious, and I'm going to come back to Captain Danilecki oh. in a minute. Yeah. What is, in your mind, with the culture you want yeah. in the Boston Police Department, the mandate of an internal affairs investigation when it comes to approaching the word of an officer? Well, it's 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 you know, first and foremost, you know, we have, we're a department of rules and regulations, so. You know, officers have to basically address, did they use, you know, are they within our rules and regulations or are they not? Because that's what we're holding them accountable for, right? And we have a whole set of them around that. And so, I mean, that's, you know, part of the issue. The word of an officer, that's, well, let me just back up for a hot second, you know. So, you know, having, an, and uh, there's no shortage of attorneys that have, you know, an issue with many officers that we have. Yeah, uh, because part of the issue is that they are trying cases. And, uh, okay, and, 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 but but I I gotta be fair here. Well, so, right? so, well, nine nine accusations of excessive use of force, twenty one internal affairs investigations on this particular officer. So let me ask you this: So in the we come on the job at a probably young age, and you're here for thirty two years. Have you done research? Like, is nine accusations difficult? And is an accusation the same as is actually sustaining a case? Right. So we're an organization where no matter who you are, people can make an accusation and it stays on your record forever and ever. But yet, though, you know, we go through and investigate it and some of them are found to be true, right? Sustained and some are found to not be true. No, I hear not you. Not sustained. And here's and so, the rock and the hard place on this. And, and, and I'm really in dialogue with you on this, right? So let's stay in this because I think this is useful because you're saying, well, wait, they might not be sustained, but... If the pushback is, well, they're never sustained, then is that a solid argument? Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, I, w I would beg to differ that they're never sustained. That's not the case at all. I mean, we sustain you know, quite a few cases around that. And so I think what the point is, is that people, you know, if you bring forth an incident and, and you know, an allegation, and we can't prove it to be uh, true, right? So we have different st standings. So, so people need to understand that. So... You, you come in and make an allegation. You say, this officer yelled at me. And so we investigate it, right? We see if there's any outside witnesses. We see if there's video. We see if it's body camera. We see if all kind of stuff. Because we can only go by facts, right? We, you know, not by what people say. Because what you find is when you bring, you know, two people in to tell a story, no matter who, what the story is, they're going to be different. They tend to be. So we have to look for facts around some of those things. And so we can prove if the allegation occurred, right, we sustain it. If we can't prove it, but the fact is we don't have anything to prove that it didn't occur either, then it's not sustained. And then sometimes there's some cases right, where, where the, we can prove that it actually did happen, but what happened was appropriate, legal, and proper. You know, I was going 80 in a 50. He pulled me over. He wrote me a ticket. <laughs> and actually, people do make allegations around that. And we look into it and say, yes, well, actually, you were, and he did that, and what they did was appropriate. That's exonerated. Right. But the mere fact that you made that allegation, it sits on your record. Mm -hmm. right? So if I write tickets for a living, and that's all I do all day long, 
is it unusual to have nine complaints from people who just don't want to get tickets or not like tickets on your record? That That's not unusual, right? Particularly when we're in the business of dealing with hundreds and thousands of people. We're in a, in, a, in a world where people don't like authority, and they certainly don't like police, particularly around tickets or anything that, that has to do with that. And so, you know, understanding, you know, the fact that someone has a complaint, it is what it is. I mean, if I were to come in the studio, not not you, whatever, or any media place, and make complaints to the editor, write them in, hey, I don't like what someone did, do you all have to report out <laughs> that we've had reporters here that had 10 complaints by right people who write right in. We, I mean, we have to issue corrections, and when we get feedback, we try very hard to respond directly to the feedback. Right. But I do so, hear what you're saying. So the point what I'm trying to get is think about the number of people who write in yeah. <laughs> with criticisms about news people. It, I, I don't know what it is, but it could be f- a fair number of them. So we're here In with- our business, if all those people write in, they are now complaints. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm here with Boston Police Commissioner mm-hmm. Michael Cox, mm-hmm. and, and I hear you. But I'm going to stay with you on this for a minute because I'm also talking to you as a public leader and one who's talking about trust and being trauma-informed, recognizing that the the community needs to feel safe, Mm -hmm. and that's the role of the police, and you as a leader are changing the culture to, to get there. And as a public leader who's confronted with those two tensions, right? Mm -hmm. How do you then deal with that? Because you, I know yeah. you know that you know, the I, average person's response is going to be, and I'm going to be colloquial on purpose, dude, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Yeah. So how do you deal with that as a public leader? Yeah. So part of the issue is, it's like, these are big issues. And the fact is, is that, I, you know, I, I'm trying to speak to education, to understand the process, to understand what goes on, to understand the difference. And the problem is when I try to, you know, because of, you know, some old issues or whatever it is that, that people get stuck, right? Like, perfect example, you just made re- mention it to a person from a complaint from five years ago. 2019. 2019. Five years ago. Well, that specific complaint. I'm, okay. I'm going to be no. my dog with a bone on this, no. too. No. That specific no, complaint. No, but, uh, but, you know, but that the, from five years ago, right? And, and, you know, I wasn't even commissioner. And... I look at other police departments and, 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 you know, the behavior of some of the officers and things that are out there. We're talking about arbitration, the things of which we've had issues where people have been bought back, but maybe they, they should not be on this job. You know, those are, you know, kind of, I want to say serious or whatever, that that's where the focus is. And now you make a mention of, of we go through a complaint process, which I was trying to explain before. And, you know, I get it and we investigate it uh, and we find the evidence indicates that the person did not or we, we couldn't prove that they did what was a, you know, they're accused of. And so we have to move on, right? We, we notify the person, the person's whatever, and then the, we continue on. But the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, people worry about us not being held accountable. Well, we're one of the few professions and not only internally do we do it, the attorney general's office could look at what we do. The U.S. Attorney's Office can come in and, and, and hold people accountable for what we do. The DA's office can come in and look at what we do. And now we have a post committee that can come in after the fact and still review all of the things. I don't know of how many other professions that have that many layers of additional people that come in to look on the day-to-day activities of someone around that. And, and so I guess the issue is what you're trying to say is trust. 
Mm-hmm. If there's no trust, that's right, right, and you do something, then everything that you do from that is like, well, I, how do I trust this, or how do I trust that, and how do I trust whatever? And so the frustrating part for me is that I'm not, you know, overreaching or underreaching for any of these things, right? It is what it is. I have to build trust with the community, you know, factually. And I have to build trust with the people who worked with the officers. Job. So I can't overreach just because someone comes in with an allegation. I was like, okay, let's look to the facts. All right. And 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 in from the public perspective, when we come to a conclusion, they're like, oh my God, we don't trust any police all the time anyway, right? Because you have a history, years and years of history of XYZ. And I'm trying to say, well, no, that's I, I'm not gonna talk about the history, but I will, you know, can talk about this. You know, we don't have proof that this is what it is. You know, today, body, you know, officers wear body cameras. You know, we, you know, we have an OPAC, we have an oversight panel. We have so many different the layers of stuff. police accountability and transparency. Correct. And then even when the case is done, we release the stuff that's out there. I mean, we, we don't really have anything to hide. Yep. The only issue that I have is that the folks who don't really necessarily trust the police, they are usually very loud voices. And they're advocates. I've never heard an advocate that doesn't like to please change their mind and look at something and say, oh, well, you know what? You're right. That just doesn't happen. It tends not to happen with anybody who's on any, any spectrum of, of, a, of a point of view. And so the fact is, is that in order for me to make sure that we always have officers that are here for the right reasons, for people to feel good about their police department, we have to understand what it is that we do and how we do it one way or the other. And that's both internally and externally. So I'd be I have no problems firing an officer that doesn't belong whatsoever. I have no problems, you know, with the with you know the evidence or what have you. But the fact is is when someone does do their job and either, you know, we, we exonerate them, saying that it was absolutely what they did was appropriate, or how about this, we can't prove it, right? And so we have to move on <laughs> until we can, right? To live to fight another day, right? And then we have to support the people who do the job in between that, regardless of the, the drums that beat on the outside, right? Because the fact of the matter is, is that if they don't trust, you know, me and the organization that, that are running it, they're not going to listen to what we ask them to do. They're not going to be able to do all the things in the public that we ask them to do because there's no trust there either, you know? And so... It's a two-way street to I appreciate try to understand it. that. That's Boston Police Commissioner Michael mm-hmm. Cox. I want to finish on one other note, and, mm-hmm. and that was a robust and, uh, answer, and I appreciate it. I appreciate you well, staying you engaged with me, me on the subject. <laughs> yeah. So I want to finish, and we, we've got like two minutes of your time left, so I'm going to mm-hmm. ask a tight question for mm-hmm. you. Um, the new uh, crime data shows the city saw fewer shootings last year than in 22, um, and uh, uh, deaths related. Mm-hmm. Um the number one thing you think is working? I think that we are, you know, partnering with many different people in the community and, and getting their point of view on, from the public's point of view, about how they want to, you know, be safe and how they can stay safe. It, uh, safety is a public, it's not, it's a public thing. It's not just the police. The public has to be involved and we have to listen and we have to be visible and we have to do a lot of things around that. And I think the city's done a great job of, of trying to have people in neighborhoods deal with trauma and things of that nature and get to the core of why people, you know, do violence in general. And we have great partnerships with Youth Connect and so many other people. I'm sorry. That's all right. <laughs> that uh, actually come into neighborhoods to work with families and people. Uh, and I think the city has a history of working with the public around a lot of this, unlike a lot of other cities. And each year we're, we're, we're you know, getting the benefit 
of all of those partnerships and the efforts that we put forward. Youth Connect is a nonprofit that situates social workers inside precincts. Yes, correct. Uh, and do you and think there's any... One more thing. Yeah, and go, and go. the hard work of the men and women that do the job of, uh, of what we do as far as making sure that we're out there to, to prevent crime. All right. And actually, with your schedule, I'll have to end it there. Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox here in Studio 2. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You're listening to Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering. We've just had uh, an in-depth conversation with the Boston Police Commissioner, Michael Cox. So here now, WBUR senior correspondent, Deb Becker, and Yawu Miller, former senior editor at the Bay State Manor, who are going to help us put all that in context. Deb, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And Yawu, welcome back to you as well. Good to be here. And Deb, just your initial reactions to the conversation with the commissioner. Well, I, I think he's sounded very similar themes uh, as he has in the past uh, about, uh, you know, making sure that public safety is treated in a way where the public is served and uh, officers are also respected for the work that they do. And I think that this is something the commissioner has focused on several times before. I, I thought it was interesting uh, the way he discussed uh, the complaints against uh, police captain John Danilecki uh, and how that is playing out at this point and suggesting that uh, there are layers of oversight to make sure that they are handling these things correctly. And yet, you know, there there is new video suggesting uh, that there may have uh, been some falsehoods uh, in the way, uh, in the information that was presented to police department internal affairs when they were investigating Captain Danilecki. So it'll be interesting to see whether the state commission that oversees police officers, how it how it handles its oversight of the Boston police and what it does with this new information. Um, so I do think that the commissioner, um, you know, reiterated uh, his emphasis on trust in the community and um, what some of his goals are to try to achieve that trust. Yeah, well, Miller, what, you know, what stood out to you and, and, and what Deb was referring to, again, is a deposition that Dan Alecki uh, had in the fall in a different court case where he characterized his actions um, uh, in taking a sign away from somebody in 2020 during a, a, a Black Lives Matter protest and video looks to um, counteract that. Um, so just to give that extra piece of context for listeners based on what Deb just said, what stood out to you, Yawu Miller? Yeah, I think the Dan Alecki case um, definitely um, has a lot of the issues that people have been talking about as far as accountability. Um, and accountability, I think, has been on people's minds a lot in the last um, few years. Uh, um, but, you know, and, yeah, in that, in, in that case, what was interesting was that IAD appeared to be doing its job and 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 um, you know bringing uh, you know a case against him, and it seemed as if uh, the commissioner was going against IAD in that instance. Um, so I, I think you know that it, it's it's um, it, it de definitely raises questions about um, Commissioner Cox's uh, um, you know his commitment to real reforms. The other thing that stood out was uh, the mental health uh, response. Um, you know, one of the areas where uh, the primary, I think, when when Commissioner Cox was talking about, um, you know, the police not responding to things that aren't that should not be under their purview. And I think in that instance, it kind of falls on the city. Um, this, you know, this people have been asking for this for years, and the city 
um, could be looking at ways. I mean, I think they are looking at ways for uh, mental health response. I mean, people trained in mental health to respond to cases that would require a mental health response rather than a police response. But I think that has moved um, at a somewhat slow pace. I don't think that they have really have a, have yet have formed a concrete plan around that. So, and just to absolutely. round, and, and, Deb, and, go, go. You know, no, absolutely. And I would say regarding mental health calls, I think Boston has been moving very slowly in improving the way it is dealing with some of this. And so uh, I, I think uh, I think you're right, Yahoo. I think that um, while the commissioner has said that um, police will always be a student of people and, and they're evolving and the change in this is evolving to a certain degree uh, to make sure that police are responding appropriately, I, I also think that this has been... And ha- this has been an evolution that's been going on for years that predated the commissioner and is happening around the country. So, Yawu Miller, um, you, at the very beginning, when I asked the police commissioner in the conversation, you know, you, you talk about a, a force that needs to change as the needs of the city change. Uh, he said, you know, I don't know necessarily that I make that change, but I think there's an evolution there. Uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, perspective as well. Um, and you who have been an observer of law enforcement throughout your entire career here, has there been an evolution? Uh, does it come from a police commissioner? I, I, I was interested in your take on that. You know, I, I think, um, I mean, there are, there are some reforms, for instance, during the Menino administration, the mayor made it clear, um, you know, this was quite a while ago, that the, and the commissioner at the time as well, um, that there there would be zero tolerance for police lying. Um, I mean, that's the kind of change that, you know, where you can see like a, more of a role for the police commissioner. I think in terms of the evolution of the community's needs, one of the, one of the, the areas of need, I think, and one thing that's been um, expressed partic- specifically by um, police reform advocates is that um, there be more resources dedicated to prevention of crime, for instance, street workers. The city does not have a functioning street worker program. Um, and, you know, I mean, people have gone as far, I mean, many people, including many members of the city council have said we should actually, you know, reduce funding for the police and divert some of the funding that we have been spending on on um, solving, you know, crimes that have already been committed to preventing crimes, you know, such as with street workers. Um, and you know that that's that's above the commissioner's pay grade. That was is something that you would expect to see coming from the mayor. Um, and uh, you know the crime rate in Boston, the violent crime rate, is half what it was twenty years ago. But you haven't seen, we have not, we haven't yet seen, um, you know, a, a serious effort to rein in police spending on things like overtime or even you know uh, um, any discussion of what should be an appropriate size police force. Um, and SOAR was the street worker program under Mayor Walsh that uh, was disbanded after Boston Mayor Michelle Wu came into office. Last thoughts in your, our last 60 seconds or so from you, WBUR's Deb Becker. Well, um, I, I did think uh, that the commissioner uh, was was overall positive, but uh, one thing that he said that stuck out uh, stuck out to me was, you know, he very much defended the officers and said, if an officer makes a mistake, 
that officer will not be thrown out but retrained. And I guess defining the mistake is key here uh, in terms of improving the trust in the community and making sure that officers are accountable, which is something that he says he wants to do. So I, I just, um, I would I would question, ask more questions about exactly how that philosophy is implemented and also if that pertains to the folks who are <laughs> being arrested as well. All right, WBUR senior correspondent Deb Becker and Yawu Miller, former senior editor at the Bay State Banner. Thanks for reflecting on our conversation today with the police commissioner, uh, Michael Cox. Thanks so much.